This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of scaphoid fracture from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. The scaphoid is the most frequently fractured carpal bone, often occurring after a fall onto an outstretched hand. Diagnosis can generally be made by dedicated radiographs, but CT or MRI may be needed for confirmation. Treatment may require a prolonged period of cast immobilization, percutaneous surgical fixation, or microsurgical graft reconstruction. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of scaphoid fracture is 15% of acute wrist injuries and 60% of all carpal fractures. These injuries occur in 8 per 100,000 females and 38 per 100,000 males. In terms of demographics, there's a 2 to 1 male to female ratio, and scaphoid fractures are most common in the third decade of life. As far as anatomic location, let's go over the percentage of fractures by scaphoid anatomic location. Waist fractures make up 65% of scaphoid fractures, proximal third fractures make up 25%, and distal third make up 10%. Historically, the distal pole is the most common location in pediatrics due to the ossification sequence. However, more recently, waist fractures have become most common. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the most common mechanism of injury is axial load across a hyperdorsiflexed, pronated, and ulnarly deviated wrist. Scaphoid fractures are common in contact sports. Transverse fracture patterns are considered more stable than vertically or obliquely oriented fractures. Associated conditions with scaphoid fractures include a scaphoid non-union advanced collapse or snack wrist, which we'll talk about in more detail in another podcast episode. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the osteology, blood supply, and biomechanics of the scaphoid. So starting with osteology, the scaphoid is a complex three-dimensional structure described as resembling a boat, skiff, and a twisted peanut. The scaphoid is oriented obliquely from the extremity's long axis, which has implications for advanced imaging techniques. The scaphoid is the largest bone in the proximal carpal row, and greater than 75% of the scaphoid bone is covered by articular cartilage. The scaphoid articulates with the radius, lunate, trapezium, trapezoid, and capitate. In terms of blood supply, the major blood supply to the scaphoid is the dorsal carpal branch, which is a branch of the radial artery. It enters the scaphoid in a non-articular ridge on the dorsal surface and supplies the proximal 80% of the scaphoid via retrograde blood flow. The minor blood supply is from the superficial palmar arch, which is a branch of the volar radial artery. It enters the distal tubercle and supplies the distal 20% of the scaphoid. The blood supply to the scaphoid creates a vascular watershed area and subsequently a poor fracture healing environment. In terms of biomechanics, the scaphoid is the link between the proximal and distal carpal row. Both intrinsic and extrinsic ligaments attach and surround the scaphoid. And note that the scaphoid flexes with wrist flexion and radial deviation and extends during wrist extension and ulnar deviation, which is the same as the proximal row. For more information about wrist ligaments and biomechanics, listen to the podcast episode about wrist ligaments and biomechanics. Now let's talk about the classification of scaphoid fractures. And the ones to know include the Herbert and Fisher classification, which is based on fracture stability, the Mayo classification, which is based on the location of the fracture line, and the Rust classification, which is based on fracture pattern. So starting with the Herbert and Fisher classification, which again is based on fracture stability, this is divided into four types. Type A is a stable acute fracture. 
Type B are characterized as unstable acute fractures and can be distal oblique, complete waist, proximal pole, transscaphoid, and perilunate-associated fractures. Type C is a delayed union characterized by cyst formation and fracture widening. And type D is a non-union. Moving on to the Mayo classification, which again is based on the location of the fracture line, this is divided into five types. Type 1 is a distal tubercle fracture. Type 2 is a distal articular surface fracture. Type 3 is a distal third fracture. Type 4 is a middle third fracture. And type 5 is a proximal third fracture. And finally, moving on to the rust classification, this is again based on fracture pattern and is divided into three types. Type 1 is a horizontal oblique fracture line. Type 2 is a transverse fracture line. And type 3 is a vertical oblique fracture line. Moving on to presentation of scaphoid fractures, patients will typically have a history of a high or low energy fall onto an outstretched hand. Symptoms can include a variable level of pain over the wrist. On physical exam, inspection may reveal wrist swelling, however rarely any ecchymosis, hematoma, or gross deformity. In terms of motion, this is worsened with wrist pain and circumduction. Patients may also have pain with resisted pronation, and provocative tests include anatomic snuffbox tenderness dorsally, scaphoid tubercle tenderness volarly, a scaphoid compression test, which is positive when pain is reproduced with axial load applied through the thumb metacarpal. And keep in mind that these provocative tests have an 87 to 100% sensitivity and 74% specificity when all three tests are positive within 24 hours of injury. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a neutral rotation PA view, a lateral view, a semi-pronated or a 45-degree oblique view, and a scaphoid view, which is taken in 30 degrees of wrist extension and 20 degrees of ulnar deviation. Waist fractures are seen best on the scaphoid view. In terms of findings, if radiographs are negative in 27% of cases and there is a high clinical suspicion, repeat the radiographs in 14 to 21 days. Moving on to bone scan, this is indicated for occult fractures in the acute setting. As far as sensitivity and specificity, there is a specificity of 98% and sensitivity of 100% with a positive predictive value of 85% to 93% when done at 72 hours. An MRI is the most sensitive for diagnosis of occult fractures less than 24 hours. It can be indicated for immediate identification of fractures ligamentous injuries as well as assessment of vascular status of the bone, specifically vascularity of the proximal pole. Proximal pole AVN is best determined on T1 sequences. The sensitivity and specificity approaches 100% for occult fractures. A CT scan with 1 mm cuts along the scaphoid axis is the best modality to evaluate fracture location, angulation, displacement, fragment size, extent of collapse, and progression of non-union or union after surgery. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, a CT scan has 62% sensitivity and 87% specificity for determining stability and fracture. However, it's less effective than bone scan and MRI to diagnose occult fracture. Treatment of scaphoid fracture can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes cast immobilization, which is indicated for stable, non-displaced fractures, which are a majority of scaphoid fractures. Cast immobilization is also indicated if the patient has normal radiographs, but there is a high level of suspicion. You can immobilize these patients in a thumb spica and reevaluate in 12 to 21 days. In terms of outcomes, scaphoid fractures with less than 1 mm of displacement have a union rate of 90%. Operative options include percutaneous screw fixation and open reduction and internal fixation. 
Percutaneous screw fixation is indicated for unstable fractures that are shown by proximal pole fractures and a displacement of greater than one millimeter without significant angulation or deformity. Percutaneous screw fixation can also be indicated in non-displaced waist fractures to allow decreased time to union, faster return to work slash sport, and has similar total cost compared to casting. In terms of outcomes of percutaneous screw fixation, there are union rates of 90 to 95% with operative treatment of scaphoid fractures, and a CT scan is helpful for evaluation of union. Finally, moving on to open reduction and internal fixation. This is indicated in the setting of significantly displaced fracture patterns, in the setting of a 15-degree scaphoid humpback deformity, a radiolunate angle of greater than 15 degrees, otherwise known as a DZ deformity, an intrascaphoid angle of greater than 35 degrees, scaphoid fractures associated with perilunate dislocation, comminuted fractures, as well as unstable vertical or oblique fractures. In terms of outcomes, accuracy of reduction is correlated with the rate of union. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with cast immobilization, in terms of technique, be sure to start immobilization early. Non-union rates increase with delayed immobilization of greater than four weeks after injury. A long-arm spica versus short-arm casting is controversial, and currently there is no consensus. The duration of casting depends on location of the fracture and the risk of non-union. Immobilization is maintained until radiographic fracture healing is demonstrated, which is usually no sooner than eight weeks. This may be required for up to 12 to 14 weeks for high-risk fracture patterns slash patients. Athletes should not return to play until imaging shows a healed fracture. You may opt to augment cast immobilization with pulsed electromagnetic fields, as studies have shown benefit in delayed union. Finally, formal therapy should be done following immobilization to regain range of motion. Moving on to percutaneous screw fixation, the approach can be a dorsal approach, a volar approach, or an arthroscopic-assisted approach. The dorsal approach is best for proximal pole fractures, and care must be taken to avoid the EPL tendon and to preserve the blood supply when entering the dorsal ridge. Be sure to limit exposure to the proximal half of the scaphoid. Keep in mind that percutaneous screw fixation has a higher risk of unrecognized screw penetration of subchondral bone. A volar approach to percutaneous screw fixation is indicated in waist and distal pole fractures, as well as fractures with humpback flexion deformities. The volar approach allows exposure to the entire scaphoid and avoids jeopardizing the scaphoid blood supply. It uses the interval between the FCR and the radial artery. Careful capsule management should be done to allow for closure and restoration of the RSC ligament. Finally, in terms of the arthroscopic-assisted approach, this has also been described to aid in anatomic reduction. In terms of the technique for percutaneous screw fixation, precise wire placement in the central axis is important to guide cannulated screw placement. Be sure that you do not violate the scapho-trapezoidal joint cartilage. Rigidity is optimized by a long screw placed down the central axis of the scaphoid. Oblique fluoroscopic images should be obtained to confirm placement and appropriate screw length. Finally, moving on to open reduction and internal fixation, the approach can be dorsal and volar, just like in percutaneous screw fixation. The technique allows for direct visualization and reduction at the fracture site, and screw placement is done in the same manner as we described with percutaneous screw fixation. Now let's talk about some complications of scaphoid fractures. We'll go over scaphoid non-union, osteonecrosis, malunion, subchondral bone penetration with arthrosis due to prominent hardware, and a snack wrist or scaphoid non-union advanced collapse. Scaphoid non-union has an incidence of 5 to 10% following immobilization and higher rates for proximal pole fractures. 
Risk factors include a vertical oblique fracture pattern, displacement of greater than one millimeter, advancing age, and or nicotine use. Treatment is vascularized or non-vascularized bone grafting procedures. Osteonecrosis has an incidence of 13 to 50 percent of all scaphoid fractures. Many studies show a 100 percent rate in proximal fifth fractures with immobilization. Moving on to malunion, this is usually secondary to flexion of the distal fragment and extension of the proximal fragment due to the pull of the scapholunate interosseous ligament, creating shortened bone with a humpback deformity. In terms of treatment, there is no clear indication supporting operative versus non-operative treatment. Moving on to subchondral bone penetration with arthrosis due to prominent hardware, this is seen following many open fixation techniques. However, the incidence has decreased with the use of fluoroscopy. Treatment includes revision surgical fixation versus implant removal following union. Finally, in terms of snack wrist, be sure to look out for the podcast episode about scaphoid non-union advanced collapse to learn more. Finally, let's end this review session talking about prognosis after scaphoid fracture. So the incidence of avascular necrosis or AVN without treatment is directly correlated with the proximity of the fracture to the proximal pole. So the proximal fifth has an AVN rate of 100% and a proximal third AVN rate of 33%. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 24-year-old male computer programmer injures his wrist two years ago while LARPing. At the time, he was diagnosed with a scaphoid fracture, but he was finishing school and did not seek treatment. He presents to your office two years later. An AP x-ray shows a scaphoid non-union with sclerotic edges and cystic changes. Advanced imaging confirms the cystic nature of the fracture site. To aid in fracture healing, you elect to harvest a vascularized graft from the medial femoral condyle. What is the pedicle most often supplying this graft? And the choices are 1. Longitudinal branch of the descending geniculate artery. 2. Transverse branch of the descending geniculate artery. 3. Superomedial geniculate artery. 4. 1, 2. Intercompartmental superretinacular artery. And 5. Perineal artery. The correct answer to this question is 1. Longitudinal branch of the descending geniculate artery. So this patient has a scaphoid waist nonunion. A medial femoral condyle or MFC vascularized bone graft can supply this defect. The longitudinal branch of the descending geniculate artery supplies the MFC. The scaphoid is nearly completely covered by articular cartilage, is entirely intraarticular, and has a retrograde blood supply that is poor. These factors predispose scaphoid fractures to nonunion. Many nonunions can be treated with cancellous graft and internal fixation most frequently a single headless compression screw. However, in the presence of cystic changes or osteonecrosis at the fracture site, a vascularized graft is indicated. Pedicles can be raised from the distal radius or medial femoral condyle, where a large piece of cancellous bone can be raised from the periosteum. Jones et al. compared scaphoid nonunions treated with distal radius pedicle vascularized grafts versus MFC. The distal radial pedicled grafts in 4 out of 10 patients healed less reliable as compared to the MFC, where 12 out of 12 patients healed. The time to healing was also shorter in the MFC cohort. The authors concluded that MFC is the superior graft for scaphoid nonunions. Moon et al. reviewed scaphoid fracture nonunion management and underscored the importance of scaphoid healing to prevent carpal collapse. In the absence of osteonecrosis, internal fixation with non-vascularized bone graft is appropriate. 
However, although vascularized grafts are technically challenging, they do improve union in the presence of osteonecrosis. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, the transverse branch supplies the medial femoral trochlea, which is used in proximal pole defects when a cartilage surface is needed. Answer 3, the supramedial genicular artery supplies the MFC in 11 to 20% of cases. Answer 4, the 1-2 intercompartmental supraretinacular artery is harvested from the wrist and provides a much smaller and less robust graft. And finally, answer 5, the perineal artery supplies a free fibula graft. Moving on to the next question. A 21-year-old male underwent percutaneous screw fixation of a non-displaced scaphoid waist fracture seven months ago and now presents with persistent radial-sided wrist pain. His skin wounds are well healed. Basic radiographs of the wrist show maintained hardware position. What is the next best step? And the choices are 1. Clinched fist stress radiograph. 2. Bone scan. 3. MR arthrography. 4. Fat suppressed T2 weighted MR imaging. And 5. Fine cut CT scan. The correct answer to this question is 5. Fine cut CT scan. So after percutaneous screw fixation of a non-displaced scaphoid waist fracture, the best imaging study to assess for union is fine cut CT scan of the scaphoid along the scaphoid axis. The etiology of chronic pain symptoms after dorsal percutaneous screw fixation of scaphoid waist fractures include fracture non-union, fracture pseudoarthrosis, loose, migrated, and or broken implants, as well as extraosseous factors, for example, neuroma. Fine-cut CT scans have shown to be the most specific imaging study to assess for fracture union after technical errors have been excluded with basic radiographs, for example, inadequate screw size or poor screw position. Ring et al. reviewed acute scaphoid fractures. They state that surgical treatment is recommended for displaced and complex fractures, like open fractures, perilunate fracture dislocations, and scaphoid fractures associated with fracture of the distal radius, very proximal fractures, and fractures for which the diagnosis and treatment have been delayed. Lutsky et al. suggest that scaphoid non-union is conventionally defined by no healing of the fracture greater than six months after fixation of the injury. They state that CT scans are most useful for diagnosing scaphoid union, but they are unreliable for ruling out non-union. Yin et al. examined the cost-effectiveness of multiple competing diagnostic strategies for suspected scaphoid fractures. They state that immediate CT and MRI were the most cost-effective strategies for diagnosing suspected scaphoid fractures. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, clinch fist stress radiographs assess for scaphoid dissociation and SL ligament injury. Answer 2, bone scans are nonspecific studies. It may show increased signal at the scaphoid, but this would not be specific for fracture union slash non-union in the early time period. Answer 3, MR arthrography, and answer 4, fat suppressed T2 weighted MR imaging are incorrect as the amount of metal from MR imaging would not provide reliable findings of fracture union. However, MRI is considered the best imaging study to assess for non-displaced acute fractures when radiographs and CT images are negative. And moving on to the final question, a 22-year-old male snowboarder falls on an outstretched hand and presents with a scaphoid waist fracture. Which of the following techniques is most important in optimizing biomechanical fixation? And the choices are 1. Using a screw placed in the central axis of the scaphoid into the subchondral bone. 2. Using a supplementary K-wire transfixing the distal pole of the scaphoid to the capitate. 3. Using a screw placed in the dorsal axis of the scaphoid into the subchondral bone. 
for using a larger diameter screw placed in the dorsal axis of the scaphoid, and five, using a larger diameter screw placed in the volar axis of the scaphoid. The correct answer to this question is one, using a screw placed in the central axis of the scaphoid into the subconjugal bone. So several studies have shown a longer screw placed in the central axis of the scaphoid optimizes biomechanical fixation of scaphoid waste fractures. Many studies have discussed the amount of compression generated by various internal fixation screws, for example, headless versus headed, variable pitch, partially versus fully threaded, cannulated versus non-cannulated, but it is believed that rigidity of fixation is probably the most important factor in promoting healing of scaphoid fractures. The reference by McAllister et al. is a cadaveric biomechanical study that demonstrated a centrally placed screw had 43% more stiffness than an eccentrically placed screw. They recommend using surgical techniques that optimize central placement and screw length, such as using a cannulated screw. The study by Dodds et al. supported these findings and added that a longer screw with 2 mm of bone coverage provided greater stability than a shorter screw. A more centrally placed screw is generally longer and has more length of screw on each side of the fracture than does a peripherally placed screw due to the anatomic dimensions of the scaphoid. That's all for this review about scaphoid fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.